For those of you remaining here in the service, please turn in your copy of God's word to the book of Hebrews, chapter one. It's not very often I get to preach on just one verse. This is good. Hebrews one, verse three. I realize some of you may be visiting and that comment might be strange to you, but normally we exposit books of the Bible. Uh, We're currently in a series going through the book of Luke and we've spent almost a year in Luke and we've made it through uh, nine chapters. So uh, here we're taking a break for Advent and uh, doing a topical sermon as we try to do that several times throughout the year. And so this morning we're turning to uh, the letter, the epistle, or we can say the book of Hebrews chapter one. And I'll read verse three. Let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for giving it to us, for sustaining it through the ages that we might have it this day. And we're so thankful that it's printed for us in a language that we understand But Lord, we confess that our human understanding is frail. Lord, we confess that we don't always understand the great and glorious and wonderful truths that you are teaching us in and of ourselves. So we cry out to you and ask by the ministry of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us. Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. Lord, that you would train us and correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness sake. Oh God, encourage us through the ministry of your spirit unto our hearts. Make the word come alive that we might rejoice even more in our savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant, protect me from error. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable unto you. And I ask all these things in the strong name of our only savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Greek mythology tells the story of a great war. The war is called the Titanomachy. And it was a war that decided which generation of gods, little g, would have dominion over the universe. It was the Titans versus the Olympians and the Olympians won. And while most of the Titans were condemned to the deep and abysmal underworld called Tartarus, there was at least one who was left to this world. His name was Atlas. And Atlas was condemned by the supreme ruler of the Olympians, Zeus, to forever stand, to forever stand at the western edge of the earth and hold up the sky on his shoulders. Perhaps you've seen 
that very famous sculpture or maybe even other figurines that depict Atlas. There he is down on one knee, hoisting the very earth upon his shoulders. And he has a look of anguish and helplessness upon his face. Perhaps you've seen that. At least you've probably held an atlas in your hands. And that's where that name comes from. Well, I'm sure that not many of us likely feel like a Greek God or a Titan, We definitely do know what it means to feel like Atlas, to feel just as the old saying that's named after him goes, you know the saying, to feel as if the weight of the world is upon our shoulders. We know what it's like to carry burdens. We know what it's like to carry sorrows, to carry expectations, to carry failures, to carry hopes and dreams, to carry suffering, to carry responsibility. We all know what it's like to feel the weight of the world upon our shoulders. We are acutely aware of its heaviness. And even though our face might not always show it, because we're good at putting on a good face, right? But our hearts most certainly do. They know it, and they show it in many ways. This morning, we are continuing to consider the fourfold name given to the promised Messiah in Isaiah 9, 6. You might remember his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Last week, we saw how Jesus, who is the one revealed as the Messiah, we saw how Jesus fulfills the role of wonderful counselor. We looked at 1 Corinthians 1, and we saw him, Jesus, as the one who confounds the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of the cross. The one who turns the world upside down with an ethic of suffering that leads to glory. The one who is our worldview, right? The one who is the worldview that embraces the humiliation of the cross before the exaltation of the throne. Jesus is indeed the wonderful counselor. Today, we come to the next name, mighty God, mighty God. And we turn to Hebrews 1.3 to uncover what it means for Jesus to be the almighty, the reigning and the victorious king over his people. To have, as Isaiah 9, 6 also says, and you may remember, or you can look there, to have the government upon his shoulder. So for us to do that, to consider this name, I'd like for us to consider or uncover two key aspects of his ruling power that demonstrates without question that he is indeed our mighty God. So we'll begin first with the nature of his power. If you're taking notes, and I know, like, I know many of you like to do that, if you're taking notes, that'll be the first of two main points this morning, the nature of his power. So to, to the world, the world, when I say that, I mean to the world around us, a little baby born in Bethlehem, it's a cute little story, right? 
I've had people tell me that. That's a cute story, the story of Jesus. It's a cute story about life's gifts and life's unexpected surprises. Have you heard anyone say that? It's a neat story. But to those of us with faith, with those of us who've had our eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, that little baby is so much more. For lying in that manger, which is really a feeding trough, for that baby lying in a feeding trough for animals born that very night, just as God had foretold by the prophets, that baby was the second person of the divine Trinity, the eternal son of God, the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And just as the Nicene Creed continues to remind us, he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the father. Many of you know the Nicene Creed, We'll recite it on Christmas Eve as we do every year, but perhaps we could state it in a more contemporary way. Just as the songwriters, Andrew Peterson and Jill Phillips, they do in their song, Labor of Love, the baby in her womb, he was the maker of the moon. He was the author of the faith that could make the mountains move. You see, born that night in Bethlehem was the mighty God the mighty God, the author of Hebrews. He's inspired by God. He's already revealed back in verse two, in chapter one, verse two, he's revealed that Jesus, quote, created the world. You can look up there and see it yourself. Jesus created the world. Now in verse three, he begins to explain how that is possible. How is it that Jesus possesses such power? How can Jesus be considered the creator of all things? And he does so by pointing to his nature. Look again at the beginning of verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is, as the author, we don't know for sure who it is, he is, as the author says here, the radiance of the glory of God. Now, he's not the reflection of God's glory, as some translations have maintained. Perhaps your translation says that. No, he's not the reflection. He's the very effulgence. That's a big word, right? <laughs> he's the very effulgence, or we might say the shining radiance. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. You can think of it this way by way of illustration. He's not as our own moon, right? We even say the light of the moon, don't we? But what does the moon do? It does nothing more than reflect the light of the sun upon the earth. Jesus is not like that. He is the shining radiance that flows from the sun. That's what this is saying. Charles Spurgeon always says it better. Are there any agreements to that? I didn't hear any amens, but Charles Spurgeon always says it better. So let me quote him. He says, as light is to the sun, so is Jesus to the glory of God. He goes on, he's the brightness of that glory. There is not any glory in God, but what is also in Christ. And when that glory reaches its climax, when God the ever glorious is most glorious, that greatest glory is in Christ. 
Amen. I'll add just a little bit to that. There is no time that the sun exists without the beams of its radiance. Might be obscured by clouds, but there's never a time. There is never a time. In just the same way, there's never a time that Jesus does not shine forth the very glory of God. As we saw last month, sometimes it gets uncovered for us in a wonderful way, like it did on the Mount of Transfiguration, like it does as we read the book of Revelation, and we will see it for ourselves one day. Remember this, the two can never be separated. Jesus is the very radiance of God's glory. Jesus is also, as our text says, the exact imprint of his nature. Or you could put it this way, maybe in simple terms, whatever God is, Jesus is. Uh, The words exact imprint, those words come from just one Greek word. It's the same word from which we get the English word character. This word character refers to the image on a coin that perfectly corresponds to the image on the die that was used to mint that coin. The image that's made is an exact imprint of the object whose image it bore. What this means for us then is that Jesus is completely the same in his being as the father. But there is still an important distinction between them. Both exist separately, just as the die and the corresponding image exist separately. But yet, an imprint of one another. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is really cool. Now we can understand When Jesus says in John 14, nine, he who has seen me has seen the father, that's what he means. So when we speak of the nature of Jesus's power as our mighty God, it's important that we maintain both his oneness with the father as well as his distinctiveness from the father. That's part of the greatness of the Trinity, is it not? Talk about standing on rocky ground, right? Trying to explain the Trinity is hard. But here it tells us in this text, Jesus is God in the flesh, but he's not the father. The same is true of the spirit. The spirit is God, but he's not the father nor the son. One God, three persons, three persons, one God. Wow. This is where I do need like, PowerPoint, right? Blown mind emojis, right? (laughs) Who can understand such things? Listen, one God, three persons, yet equal in substance, power, and glory, as our own confession says. And so Jesus, who is the promised king of his people, the one who will sit upon the throne for all eternity. He is indeed the mighty God of Israel. You see, in Isaiah's day, kings were considered to be gods. Kings were often called gods. But Jesus is so much more than just another earthly king. He's the mighty God. In Hebrew, it's El Gabor, not just El, God, little little G God. He's El Gabor, he's the mighty God. 
He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. That's what the author of Hebrews is pointing us to, inspired by God so we would know God's truth. And this is what's true. No earthly king had that kind of power. They might've called themselves big G God, but they weren't. No earthly king could do that. But that cute little baby boy, born in Bethlehem. It's the mighty God of Israel. He's your mighty God and my mighty God. And that brings us to the second key aspect of his ruling power that is found in Hebrews 1, 3. And I'll call it the effect of his power. So if you're taking notes, that's the second point today, the effect of his power. Look how the author of Hebrews states it In the second half of the verse, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, Jesus is not just the creator of the world as was stated in one, two, but he's also the sustainer of the world. Not only did he create it, but he sustains it. Again, not to get too much into this, but the original language, the Greek, the word here for upholds is the word that you would use when you were describing a ship that was being carried along or a ship that was being driven along by the wind. In fact, I think to help us understand this, we can go to the the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Some of you might know that it's called the Septuagint. They use this very word when translating Numbers 11.14. This is what Numbers 11.14 says. This is Moses. He says to God, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. I can't carry this on my shoulders. What's he talking about? Well, if you know the story, he's talking about the weight of the burden that comes with the responsibility of governing Israel and guiding Israel. He's not able to do it. He can't sustain them. He can't carry them along. He's unable, but Jesus is able. Jesus does it. He's not just upholding his people. He's upholding the entire universe. Think about that. He's not just sustaining Israel. He's sustaining the entire universe by the word of his power. You see, Jesus is portrayed here. Uh, He's not just some Atlas-like figure who's holding up the universe as a, a dead weight and he's not doing anything else but just straining under the weight of it. That's not the image for us. The picture painted for us here is that Jesus is carrying the universe along. Jesus is bearing it up by the very word of his power. Jesus is guiding the world toward its final consummation on the last day. You see, he's the creator and the sustainer. He's not passive or static. No, he is actively involved in our world. He's holding it all together and he's driving it along to accomplish all his purposes. Think about this just for a moment. Without his sustaining power, what would happen? to the world. What's the picture painted for us here and in Colossians 1 and in other places? It would all fall apart. 
But I'll just, but he sustains it. He holds it up. He carries it along. Reminds me of the first time I heard someone talk about the Jesus nut. Yep, the look on your face is exactly the look I had. I was like, what? Because the reference wasn't to a person. You might've thought Jesus freak and I'm not gonna sing that song. But they were actually talking about helicopters. They were talking about helicopters and they talked about the Jesus nut. You see the term Jesus nut was, was first coined by American soldiers in the Vietnam War. And it was coined by them to speak about the fastener that was used to secure the main rotor of a helicopter to the mast. Okay, this piece could fit in the palm of a man's hand. Yet, yet if it were to fall while in flight, that rapidly spinning motor would just detach and you know, you know what happens next, right? Crash, burn, death. This term, some of you may know it, it's used in all kinds of applications, including like mountain climbing and things like that. It continues to be used in many systems to refer to any component, any component of that system that is a single point of failure, right? That if it fails, the, the results are catastrophic. And that leaves you with only one thing to do. And that's why they called it the Jesus nut. Because all you got left to do at that point is pray and ask Jesus to help. And that's why they called it that. You see the connection? You see the connection with our text and the point I'm trying to make? Without the sustaining almighty power of Jesus's very word, it would be the end of the world as we know it. I won't sing that song either. There's not another earthly king that can lay claim to that kind of power, none. But even that, even as great and glorious as that is, that's not the end of his power. There's even more. Jesus has so much more than just creating and sustaining power. He has recreating power. He has recreating power. You see, he's more than just a king. He's our great high priest. He's able to do more than any other priest could ever do. He's king and priest. This is what the author of Hebrews is pointing to throughout the whole book. But also when he mentions here in verse three, that Jesus made purification for sins. And after that, he sat down at the father's right hand. Now we went through the book of Exodus last year and maybe you weren't here, but maybe you're familiar with the book of Exodus and Leviticus and all the ceremonial things that went on in the nation of Israel. And you will remember that the priests of Israel, they wore really elaborate garments. And you might remember that on the bottom of those garments along the seam, there were bells sewn in to that seam. And these bells served many purposes for those outside, right? Because if that guy does it wrong and dies, they know that he's no longer alive. But it served another purpose, right? It was a way for the people to know that the priests are active. <laughs> There's something going on. And we can't see inside the holy place of the most holy place. We can't see what's going on, but we hear them. And so we have a little bit of assurance to know that they're still at work. They're, they're making sacrifices for our sins. Day after day after day, those bells jingled and jangled, right? People could hear what was going on. But Jesus the better and the great high priest. What did he do after he offered himself as the sacrifice for his people? As he became both the priest and the one sacrificed and shed his blood for us, what happened? He said, it's finished, it's done. 
Love's redeeming work is done. He doesn't have to keep offering himself up all the time for our sins. One time was enough. It is finished by the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, but Jesus does. Think about the connection. Earthly kings could deliver people from earthly enemies and they were called gods because of their great victories and how mighty they were. But Jesus, the mighty God, the king and priest of his people, he delivered them from even the enemies of sin and death. He provided the greatest deliverance. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Do you see the power of Jesus, his mighty power to save is so powerful that he's even able to reverse the curse for those who believe in him by faith. He's able to bring sinners like you and me from death to life. He's mighty to save. And not only that, he's mighty to carry us along until the great and final day. When Jesus says, and we heard it read earlier, thank you, Nathan, those words of assurance, when Jesus says, I give them eternal life, I give it to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's not wishful thinking. That's the mighty, the mighty God with the recreating creating, sustaining power who says no one will snatch them out of my hand. He means it. He absolutely means it. He is indeed the mighty God. I wanna start our conclusion today by telling you a story that I first heard from Pastor Adrian Rogers. I heard it on the radio. And it's a story about passengers on a ship and the ship was facing a, a severe storm. And the ship was in danger of sinking. And the passengers that were below were beginning to worry, right? And they were whispering to one another, things like, are we safe? Are we going down? Are we going to die? And of course, one pastor, there's always that one passenger who says, I can't ask questions anymore. I gotta go find out. I'm out of here. So this passenger made his way topside across the heaving decks to the captain's station. And there he found the pilot of the ship with his hands firmly and steadily on the wheel of the ship. And when the pilot turned and saw the fear that was gripping the face of this passenger, he didn't say a word to him. He just looked at him and smiled, white knuckles and all. And he smiled. Upon returning to the other passengers, this is what that man said to them. We're going to be all right. We're gonna make it. I've seen the face of the pilot and he smiled at me. I've seen his face and he smiled. Brothers and sisters, as I said in the beginning, every single one of us know what it's like to feel like Atlas to feel as if the very weight of the world is upon our shoulders. But I have good news for you. Atlas 
was indeed condemned to carry the world on his shoulders. But that actually wasn't his greatest condemnation for story's sake, okay? What was the greatest condemnation that he faced? It was that he was condemned to be his own champion. His greatest condemnation is that he was condemned to do it all on his own, to bear the weight all on his own. The good news for you, the good news for me, whether it's the first time or the millionth time that you've heard it, is that we don't have to be our own champion. We don't have to be our own champion. Jesus is our champion. Jesus was both condemned and exalted for us. He not only carries the universe along on his shoulders, but he freely invites us to cast all of the weight that we're carrying upon him as well. Come to me. All of you who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me. I like that verse, but don't forget Psalm 55, 22. It says it well. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to fall. So I think our call today is very clear. Give your burdens over to the champion. I love that the word cast is used there in Psalm 55, 22. It's hurl them, throw them. Just like you would throw a net into the sea or as Jonah was cast from the belly of the great fish, hurl your burdens over to the champion. Cast upon him all of your anxieties, all of your worries, all of your sorrows, all of your expectations, all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your sufferings, all of your failures. Yes, even all of your sins, cast them upon him. And just as he sustains the universe by the word of his power, he will sustain you. He will carry you along. He will never ever allow you to fall from his care. He is the mighty God. And the greatest news is that he's your mighty God, right? He's my mighty God. If we believe in him by faith. So this Christmas season, as you celebrate Advent, both his first Advent, his coming and his second future Advent, his future coming, I believe all of us who are in Christ can say with confidence, I'm gonna be all right. I'm gonna make it. I've seen the face of the mighty God and he smiled at me. He's lifted his countenance upon us. He will be with us. He'll be with you and he'll never forsake you. Amen and amen.